Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Howard Goldman from Cleveland Clinic and Lerner College of Medicine talking about third-line overactive bladder therapies. As you can see, my name is Howard Goldman. I'm actually from Cleveland, Ohio. Truthfully, I'm not from Cleveland. I'm from Los Angeles, but I'm in Cleveland now. So instead of the nice weather you Californians are having, we have a little bit of snow. I have to be honest with you, I'm not used to giving a presentation at eight o'clock at night after I just had a nice dinner and some wine. Uh, that's not the typical way I usually do it, but say lovey. So what we're going to talk about this evening or this afternoon. So these are my, oops, these are my disclosures. I have a number of them. We're going to start by just very briefly talking about the evaluation of overactive bladder, as well as uh, first and second line treatments and how we define refractory OAB, and then we'll spend really the vast majority of the time talking about third-line overactive bladder therapies, how they compare, and then we'll spend some time on what is coming next. So let's just go over what OAB, the OAB syndrome is. So again, it's urinary urgency is really the pathognomonic sign, usually with some frequency in nocturia, with or without urgency incontinence in the absence of some other pathology. So if somebody has a bladder tumor, a UTI, so that's not OAB, that's a bladder tumor causing irritation. And this is really only becomes a problem when it bothers somebody. So if you're like me and drink a lot of coffee and go a lot, but it doesn't really bother you, then it's not a problem. So let's talk about some of the statements on the OAB guidelines. So when someone presents with OAB symptoms, symptoms, really the basic evaluation is just a history, physical, and urinalysis. You don't have to do more than that. At your discretion, you may want to get a PVR, bladder diaries, things like that. And sometimes bladder diaries can be important. Here's a real deal. This is a patient of mine. And here's the interesting thing. So she drinks 20 ounces at 10 a.m., 12 ounces of Coke at 3 p.m., 7 ounces of Coke at uh, uh, 10 ounces of Coke at 7 p.m., 10.30, some juice. Now at 11.30 at night, she starts with margaritas. And then about every hour, Bud Light, Bud Light, Bud Light. She then starts abbreviating it, Bud Light, Bud Light, Bud Light. So, so this woman has, there's a fluid issue, but it's really not, it's not a urologic issue. This is more of an intake of Bud Light issue. And sometimes you really can learn a lot from those kinds of fluid diaries. Guideline statement three, urodynamic cystoscopy and ultrasound should not be used in the initial workup of the uncomplicated patient. So in your average patient who shows up with OAB symptoms, you don't have to get a bunch of fancy tests. Now, in somebody who's complicated or refractomy, if there's perhaps a neurogenic component, you think there may be obstruction, they've had prior surgeries, things like that, then there may be reasons to get urodynamics or cystoscopy, et cetera. So just before we get into third-line therapy, again, the bottom line for the evaluation is history physical and urinalysis. Fluid diaries can be helpful. And further evaluation um, is really contingent upon the specific situation. So this is the Howard Goldman OAB treatment algorithm. Everybody should get some behavioral therapy. Then it's either exercises, 
medication or a combination thereof. If one medicine fails, you may try another one. You may add imipramine, though that's off-label for this use. And if you fail those things, that's where we get into refractory overactive bladder. And that's where we get to what we now call the third-line therapies, tibial nerve stimulation, sacral neuromodulation, botulinum toxin. And if those things fail, then we might try some experimental protocol or go on to a bladder augmentation. Now, bladder augmentations we do much more frequently in patients who have a neurogenic etiology. And really the focus of today's talk is on these third-line therapies that we've highlighted in the box. So again, the treatment, first-line treatment with behavioral therapy, really should try on everybody. There's no risk to it. Second-line treatment with medications, non-invasive, relatively low risk, try that. And if you fail those things, go on to third-line therapies. And here's just the OAB guidelines. So again, history, physical urinalysis, behavioral therapies is the first line treatments, then medication. And if that is not satisfactory, then you go on to either botulinum toxin, uh, PTNS, or sacral neuromodulation. So again, looking at some of the other statements in the OAB guideline, just keep in mind that the various antimuscarinics and beta-3 agonists, really there's no evidence that there's any differential efficacy across these medications, which means, which that means, they, as far as efficacy, they all work about the same. Now, some have one particular side effect more than the other, et cetera, et cetera, um, but as far as efficacy, really not that much difference. So then we get to refractory OAB. So that's the patient who has bothersome symptoms, who's failed behavioral therapy and did not respond to or could not tolerate at least one medication. So if you look in the guidelines, it's just one medication. I think practically most of us would try two medications or at least two doses of the same medication before moving on to third-line therapy. And so third-line therapy. So as we've mentioned, we have tibial nerve stimulation, sacral neuromodulation, neuromodulation and onobotulinum toxin. So let's go through those one by one. So the first one is PTNS. And the idea here is you stick a very, very small needle right above and medial to the medial malleolus. Um, you know you're in the right spot because when you apply some electrical stimulation, the toes kind of move and the patient has a sensation at the bottom of their foot. Uh, this is done once a week for about 12 weeks. And if indeed uh, it, it works, then we go on and we typically do this roughly once a month forever. Now there is good evidence that this works. Um, again, the idea here is by stimulating the tibial nerve that leads up into the sciatic nerve, which then leads up into multiple sacral roots. So you're actually hitting a bunch of different sacral roots at the same time. This was a nice study done over 10 years ago where they had a lot of patients. They randomized them to tibial nerve stim versus a sham and it was a very good sham. And the bottom line is Interestingly, only about half the patients in either group could guess which group they were actually in, which shows you that it's a good sham because people, people could not tell which group they were actually in. When you look at the outcome, about 55% of the patients in the real therapy in tibial nerve stimulation had improvement as compared to just about one out of five patients in the sham group. Now, Many of us have used this, and I will tell you, when I think about third-line therapy, tibial nerve stimulation does work. 
uh, I think it's not quite as powerful as botulinum toxin or sacral nerve stimulation. The outcomes, while patients get better, it's not quite of that home run. I mean, there are patients who you do Botox or put some kind of sacral nerve modulation device in who, you know, a week later come back and tell you, wow, my life has changed. I'm totally better. With tibial nerve stimulation, many patients will tell you I've improved, but it's not always that same home run. Now, having said that, do you really need to put the needle in? Can you get the same response with perhaps just a surface electrode? And we're going to come to that in just a moment. This is just a study that looked at a systematic review and meta-analysis of multiple papers on tibial nerve stimulation and showed that the overall success rate put together was about 68%. And this just shows one of their diagrams um, showing some of that. As I mentioned just a minute ago, do you really need that needle? So here's a nice study, which was just recently published, where they actually did transcutaneous stimulation. So it's just a patch on the skin in that same area. And when they did that, they noticed significant improvements. So this is the transcutaneous stimulation. Here's the control group. So perhaps you don't even need to put the actual needle in. And furthermore, here's a recent paper where they actually did a, a randomized uh, study looking at transcutaneous versus an actual needle. And the findings there, the red is the traditional PTNS group. The blue line here is the transcutaneous group. And when you look at improvement in symptom scores uh, on both of these various scales out at weeks six to 12, you can see that they're very similar. So the truth is perhaps even just a transcutaneous stimulation may be all you need. So let's move on to sacral nerve modulation. Uh, no one really fully understands how this works. The idea generally is that somehow by stimulating the S3 nerve, somehow you normalize bladder function. And the interesting thing is this works for not only overactive bladder, but it also works for um, non-obstructive idiopathic urinary retention. So patients who have trouble voiding are not obstructed, it may work for. And I think a lot of the reason for that and what some of the theories are is that what's happening here is there's abnormal uh, stimuli coming from the pelvic floor that are leading to, leading to either the overactive bladder or to, or to the underactive bladder per se. And by uh, stimulating the third sacral nerve, which is where a lot of the information to and from the bladder is, bladder is passing through, by putting some electrical stimulation in that spot, you're actually running interference and blocking all those abnormal impulses and thereby allowing the normal reflexes uh, to come back. So what's done here is you directly stimulate the S3 nerve. There are two ways you can do it. You can either do a trial phase where you actually put a permanent lead in the operating room and you give that two weeks or so, see how it does. And then if it works, you come back and just put the actual stimulator device in, but you already have the lead in. Uh, if it doesn't work in the office under local, you can always remove the lead. The other option is in the office, and we like to do it in the office under fluoro with under just local anesthetic, you put two little wires, real temporary wires in, and you give it a week or two. And if it works, you just pull those wires out in the office, and then you go to the OR and put the entire thing in with a new lead, a permanent lead, and a permanent generator.
So this has been around the uh, Medtronic neurostimulation device. The Interstim was approved in 1997. And so it's been around for well over 20 years. Uh, this is one of the more recent studies. So this was a study um, that was actually done 10 years or so, where they just, they looked at patients who had the Interstim. And the bottom line is when they followed these patients out up to even five years, they still had fairly good success rates in those who had passed the initial trial. Now, again, it's important to note they didn't, didn't have quite the same number of patients. There were some patients who dropped out. Some patients had not yet gotten to um, that five-year time period, so you know, didn't get to this bar over here. But at the end of the day, you could see that at least for a significant number of patients, this actually does help them immensely. When you look at urge incontinence, significant improvements in urge incontinence as well. Uh, many patients, you know, in this group, anywhere from about 30 to 45% of patients became dry. And then another 30 or 40% of patients had significant improvement. Now, one of the issues that's been around for a while was um, MRI compatibility issues. Till last year, we really were limited using this sort of technology in certain populations because there are certain patients who may need MRIs and really officially you could not do MRIs in patients who had these devices uh, in them. And so particularly uh, there were some patients let's say neurologic patients who may need yearly MRIs who we couldn't do these on. Uh, there are also some patients who had a sick device who then need an MRI and were told they couldn't get an MRI. And then there were some who had a good device who needed an MRI, who really ultimately pay, people would remove these, they would get the MRI and then two months later, they'd come back and put these back. Which if you think about undergoing two surgeries, risk of an infection, the cost, that's really, really, really ridiculous. So we had a lot of questions about this and we actually, there were some earlier studies that reported on patients who'd had MRIs with an inner stimin where they didn't realize it was in or I don't know what, but nobody had any issues. So we did a phantom study where we actually had an acrylic gel inside of a model of the torso and we set up an inner stim and then we did MRIs on them. And what we did is we had little heat sensors at different points, a heat center at the tip of the lead, heat sensor at the proximal portion of where the electrodes are, a heat sensor at the generator, and then one out in the gel as a control. And we tested three different scenarios, an intact device with a generator and a lead, a broken lead fragment, what can sometimes happen when you pull a lead out and it breaks near the tip, or a complete lead, but without a generator. And so we ran these through all the various different MRI sequences. And what we found is that when you have an intact device, so this just shows the changes in temperature at each of those different sites where we had the little thermo uh, sensors. And you can see that the change in temperature was less than half a degree. So really no issue there. If you had just a little broken tip of a lead, again, really minimal temperature change. On the other hand, if you had a complete lead, now you start and you can see the the um, y-axis here is different, you actually start to see some significant temperature changes. So really our conclusion was if you have a complete system or just a broken portion of a lead, you're fine. If someone happened to put a lead in and didn't attach it to a generator, that's where you have to be concerned. Now, 
that all sounds good, but what about in real patients? So we then went ahead and did a prospective study in live patients. And what we did is we took a number of patients who needed a non-head MRI. And again, remember, ultimately this was approved. You could get head MRIs, 1.5 Tesla head MRIs with these devices. But the big question was what about the rest of the body? So we did a prospective study where we took a number of patients who needed an MRI who already had a functioning inner stem. We did all kinds of questionnaires. We tested the devices, et cetera, et cetera. We enrolled 11 patients who all needed lumbar uh, or some other spine MRI. Most common indication was back pain. And then we did the MRIs. We actually had a fellow in the room. The patient had a button. So if they had any pain, they could stop the MRI, et cetera. And the bottom line is during the study, one patient had minimal discomfort, two had a little bit of warmth, but really nothing else happened. And they only reported these when we asked them. Down the road, there were no significant issues, no changes in lead or battery function. All their questionnaires as far as how their OAB was doing stayed the same. So really what we showed is that it is safe to perform MRIs or at least 1.5 lumbosacral MRIs in these patients. However, the caveat that the radiologists always would put in on our specific machine at the longitudinal latitude of the Cleveland Clinic at our elevation above sea level. Now, the good news is about a year ago, another company came out with a device that this time was MRI conditional. So as long as you kind of set the MRI to the right settings, you could do an MRI. Initially, it was approved for 1.5 and earlier this year approved for three Tesla. The other thing is this was a small device and it was also rechargeable, which if you think about the traditional devices that kind of had a battery life of about five years. So every five years, you would need to go in, operate to change the battery, so to speak. With this device, these batteries should last at least 15 years. The sort of the book says 15 years, but the truth is they should even last longer than that. And that's with recharging anywhere from once a week to once a month, depending on the situation. Now that really changes a lot of things. This is the paper that was published in the Journal of Urology earlier this year that talked about the early six month results. And what I could tell you is we just recently published the one year results and we already have the two year data that is very similar. But the bottom line is when you look at the decrease in urgent incontinence episodes, it goes from about five and a half to 1.3, very significant. When you look at the percentage improvement, 80% of subjects had at least a 75% reduction in urgent incontinence episodes. As far as responders, overall, roughly 90% of patients had significant improvement. So that's a pretty, pretty impressive data. This looks at quality of life. And again, white is baseline, and then the two greens are three and six months. And you can see significant improvements in quality of life scores, looking at various different indices across the board at up to six months. And again, I will tell you, these have been shown uh, to be maintained at one and two years. Now, so that was Exonix. Medtronic earlier this year came out also with a small rechargeable uh, neurostimulation device. It's just 2.8 uh, cc's volume. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's 2.8 centimeters long. It's, it's about actually this size in the picture. This is also full body safe 1.5 and three Teslas. 
And so Medtronic has both now the rechargeable as well as the older uh, traditional battery. So I think there are a lot of nice things we have now and a lot of options for sacral neuromodulation. Moving on to the third of our third line therapies is botulinum toxin. So this is a very potent neurotoxin. There are a number of different serotypes. The ones A and B are the ones that are used clinically. Um, there's a good and the bad. The good is that this works quite nicely. Um, the negative is it does wear off after anywhere from about five to generally about eight months. So the good news is if for whatever reason the patient has troubles with retention, which happens in a small minority of patients, that does wear off. The bad news is no matter how things go, you have to kind of redo this roughly once or twice a year. And the way that it works is by blocking the release of acetylcholine from the presynaptic edge of the uh, cholinergic junction. So acetylcholine is held in these little vesicles. There are various proteins that help that vesicle fuse to the nerve terminal and then release acetylcholine across the synapse and then stimulate the receptors in the muscle. And what Botox does or botulinum toxin does is it actually blocks the actual release of acetylcholine. So this is done either in the office or the OR. We do almost all of these in the office. We give a little lidocaine uh, with some bicarb right after that and let it sit for 15 or 20 minutes. Um, all these patients, we talk to them about the five or 6% uh, risk of needing to self-calf temporarily if they have some retention, we do give them an antibiotic and then we go ahead and inject the Botox. And generally the standard template is sort of usually about 15 or 20 locations throughout the back wall uh, of the bladder. So here's one of the big studies that led to approval. And essentially what they showed, this was for idiopathic, it's a hundred units at roughly 20 sites. The studies have not injected the trigone. And the outcomes, which I'm gonna show you here. So this is placebo. This is decrease in urgent continence episodes per day. So this is botulinum toxin, Botox, here's placebo. See a very significant difference. This is at 12 weeks. So almost 60% of patients who got Botox had at least a 50% reduction in leakage versus less than a third who got the placebo. And when you look at dry rates, almost a quarter of the patients who got Botox were dry compared to just a small handful who got the placebo. And this looks at quality of life improvements. Again, the purple is botulinum toxin, the yellow is placebo. Now, when you look at side effect profile, now, clearly those who get botulinum toxin have a, diff have a little higher rate of UTIs, some dysuria, because obviously you're manipulating inside the bladder. And then retention we mentioned is somewhere between about five and 6% for idiopathic patients. But again, that does wear off uh, with time. So overall with botulinum toxin, it definitely decreases the OEB symptoms, increases bladder capacity, does need to be repeated every few months. There is that small risk of need for temporary self-catheterization. Again, idiopathic patients, we use 100 units. For neurogenic, we use 200. And very important to note, the data that I've just showed you is for Botox, which is made by Allergan. There are a number of different types of botulinum toxin. Some other companies, particularly in Europe and other places, um, 
not all have been approved in the US, but they may be available for other indications. But the bottom line is the dosages are different. The units are different. So if your hospital comes to you and tells you, uh, you know, we found a cheaper alternative and we want you to use it, read the information, you know, for how to administer it because the number of units you're going to have to use is probably going to be different than what we've talked about. So what about when you compare Botox to sacral nerve stimulations? So this is a trial. This is from, it was called the Rosetta trial. Uh, this was the two-year outcomes published about two years ago. And what they did is they compared, they randomized patients to either Botox or Interstim. And what they showed is over about two years, when you look at the decrease in urgent incontinence episodes, it's very similar, perhaps a little bit better in Botox. When you look at side effect profile, of course, Botox did have a higher rate of UTIs compared to neuromodulation. Neuromodulation, you're not manipulating the urinary tract. Now, there were and there are some concerns about this study. And, and two of the main ones are, in the study, they used 200 units of Botox for idiopathic patients. <coughs> now, we discussed the standard treatment dose that is used is 100 units. So they actually use twice the dose that we use as a standard in most patients. <coughs> the other thing is they did use an old version of the sacral neuromodulation lead. So not exactly what we're doing today. I mean, we use a much lower dose and we use a different uh, version of the lead. So that may account for some of the, the fact that perhaps uh, the outcomes look very similar. The other thing that was interesting is the surgeons only needed to have experience doing 10 neuromodulation procedures. And I would suggest that you have to do a lot more than 10 sacral neuromodulation procedures to get really good at getting the lead into the right place. So I'm not sure that everybody who's putting these leads in perhaps had that same skill level. I think Botox is, botulinum toxin is a lot easier to put in. It's a lot quicker learning curve, just inject it in the bladder. Uh, whereas I think putting a lead into the appropriate position may have a, a greater learning curve. Be that as it may, those are the results. Um, now, this is a slide that I would have showed a year ago. We'll go through it and then I'll tell you how I think it's changed. So I think there are different characteristics. Botox is approved and used for both idiopathic and neurogenic patients. Sacral neuromodulation, though some of us do use it for neurogenic patients, it's primarily been used for idiopathic patients. Botox has to be done, and when I say Botox, I mean all the botulinum toxins, has to be done probably twice a year. Sacral neuromodulation, as of a year ago, had to be done every five years. We now know with the rechargeable ones, it may be every 15 years. Botox does not help the bowels. Sacral neuromodulation actually is approved for fecal incontinence. So if you have a patient with bladder and bowel dysfunction, sacral neuromodulation may be the way to go. There is a little bit of an increased risk of UTIs with Botox. Um, botulinum toxin did not have any MRI issues where sacral neuromodulation did in the past. Uh, and at the end of the day, botulinum toxin, there's no foreign body, whereas there is, even if, if it's a small one, there is a foreign body with sacral neuromodulation. Now, as I said, things have changed in the last year. The size of the devices has gotten much smaller. There, you now have our option of rechargeable. So you may only be putting a new one in every 15 plus years, and that changes you know, all the calculations. And again, now you can probably do most MRIs with these neuromodulation devices. 
I would say that when it comes to picking the right therapy, you really have to individualize. Um, again, as I said, if someone has both bladder and bowel symptoms, probably would be better off with sacral neuromodulation. If you have a patient who has recurrent UTIs, or if you have a patient who has voiding dysfunction, so they have OAB, but they also have a high PVR, they don't empty that well, so you probably don't want to give them Botox because that may put them into retention, where sacral neuromodulation may take care of both. On the other hand, if they don't want a permanent implant, if they want to go to the OR, a lot of reasons to consider Botox. And then finally, there's the patient preference. When it comes to cost effectiveness, so this was the same study that we talked about a moment ago, the Rosetic trial. And what they found, excuse me, what they found is that although both treatments were effective, given that echo neuromodulation costs a lot of money, they said it was not a good value compared to 200 units of onobotulinum toxin. However, what I would suggest is that things have changed. Number one, we're using 200. Even though we now have about that modular devices that will be in the patients for 15, even 20, perhaps even longer year financial calculations. There was a very interesting study that just came out. It's available online that looked at some of the cost effectiveness issues. And I'll sort of read you what they said, the conclusions. This review highlights the heterogeneity of the literature when looking at cost effectiveness. In addition, most of the studies are funded by industry, which may lead to bias. When they compared the cost effectiveness, as well as looking at other therapies, though the general trend um, showed that when you compare sacral neuromodulation to botulinum toxin, sacral neuromodulation appears to be cost-effective in the long-term from five years on, while Botox is cost-effective earlier. Again, I would suggest to you, if the device you're putting in is going to last 15 years, that even more changes that whole ratio. Well, let's look at some of the new and emerging therapies. And we talked about tibial nerve stimulation. There's a lot of work now looking at implantable tibial nerve implants. And the idea there is to actually put a little lead or something somewhere near the, the nerve such that you can actually stimulate this on a regular basis without the patient having to come into the office and sticking a needle in and trying to find the nerve and all that sort of thing. So I'm just gonna go through some of the devices that have studies either that have been published or ongoing. Um, the first one is a company called Valencia and they call it the eCoin. And the interesting thing about this one is they don't put it down right next to the nerve. They just put it under the skin and it actually has a battery within it. There's no specific lead. And essentially this is the size of it. So it's about the size of a nickel. And they program it to stimulate uh, like 30 minutes every other day for 12 weeks. And then on a regular basis after that. So they did a study that was published in the Journal of Urology last year. This just shows how they put it in. They have like a little, uh, a little ruler, so to speak, that they put the corner at the midpoint of the medium malleolus, and then they sort of see where they should put this thing. They numb it up, they make an incision, and they just make a little pocket and put this under the skin. And what they showed is they had a decrease in nerve incontinence, about 71% at three months and 70% of the patients had at least a 50% improvement. They had two little side effects were, which were not that big a deal. Uh, this just shows from baseline 
to various time points on the uh, decrease in urge incontinence. So you could see that it definitely works. And this looks at quality of life improvements. So this is a very interesting idea. This is, uh, you know, there, it's undergoing further study and I think it's moving towards commercialization. Another device, and this one is different because this one actually puts a lead down right next to the nerve. And the idea here is that this little lead, which is very tiny, is put near the nerve and there's no battery. And what happens is you then wear this thing on the ankle a few times a week and that via radio frequency actually sends um, some energy to stimulate this device and then cause stimulation to the nerve. So this currently, uh, this is from a company called Blue Wind. This is done through a little open incision where they make a small incision, cut through the fascia, and then actually place the device right next to the nerve and close everything up. They just published their three-year follow-up results in the Journal of Urology. And again, you can see significant improvement from somewhere between six and seven urge incontinence leaks per day to at three years, just over three. Now, you have to look at this critically. Uh, not all the patients followed up, and they did a lot of little ways of showing that the, the group that lasted for three months, for, th for three years, was very similar to the group that started. So it's not a perfect study, but I think it does show that this does have the potential for efficacy. Then there are some where you just put it in percutaneously and develop, deliver a lead. This is a company that has a retrograde way of doing it, where you actually put this little introducer in, you tunnel up the lead, and then you just leave the lead under the skin. And again, they wear this external device that actually provides the stimulation a few times a week. And this is currently being studied. Here's another one. This is a company called Bionis and conflict of interest. I am on the study and work with this company. Um, this is a company where they have a little lead that has been approved for chronic pain. And they have 20 or 22 different nerves throughout the body where they can place this lead um, right next to the nerve. And then they just apply a patch over the surface to actually stimulate the lead and stimulate the nerve. So this is placed percutaneously and then um, the patient wears a little stimulating patch a few times a week. And they, the data on this is pending. Here's a little video we made about this. So I'll just show it to you. It, this is a sort of really cut down one minute version of the longer little video. But what it shows is we use a little device uh, with ultrasound. We can identify where the nerve is by seeing some of the vessels. We then stimulate an area and we can see the toes move. So we know we're in the right spot. Here's where we wanna get to. We numb up an area here, make an incision, and then pass a little wire. We perforate through the fascia, and then we test it. And when we see the toes moving, we know the tip is in the right place. And then we put a little introducer over that, remove the wire, and then we actually put the permanent lead through the introducer and then take the introducer out. So the permanent lead is in, in there, and then we just tunnel it under the skin the rest of the way, close everything up. And this is done completely in the office and they're local. So this again is, this, the data is still uh, forthcoming. So I think we have a lot of options. You know, we talked about how to evaluate these patients, first line treatment with behavioral therapy, second line treatment with pharmacologic therapy, and then finally the third line treatments, which is what we spent the bulk of our um, discussion on. The nice thing I would say is that we have multiple options so no matter sort of which way your patient goes, if it's someone who's more interested in a permanent implant, someone who's more interested in coming in once or twice a year, but not have an implant, 
<coughs> there are a lot of different options. And if I think back 20 years ago or so to when I started, where at that time we had oxybutynin, and that was about it. And that was just as neuromodulation was being intro introduced. You know, I'm really grat gratified that we have so many good options now and so many different ways that we can treat these patients. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.